Now, I know you were all so excited for more gloom and doom in Jude. Uh, it was initially my plan this week to continue on in that book for uh, this morning's sermon. But honestly, at the beginning of the week, I couldn't get my mind off of uh, the duties of Christian fellowship. That is the responsibility that we have as Christians towards one another. And uh, instead of trying to fight against that, I was like, well, I'll, just, I'll preach on that this Sunday. So because of that, instead of Jude, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Don't worry, the gloom and doom will be back next week, Lord willing. If I were to ask you, what do you think is the most important virtue, I suspect that a great number of you uh, could potentially answer love. As Christians, we're well aware of the importance of love. Of course, we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we know this internally, we recognize this, we read that throughout Scripture, and yet still, I think, often we struggle to do as we ought to in both of those, both with respect to our love for the Lord and our love for our neighbors. The cares of this world distract us. Society lies to us. Sin hardens our heart. And so I think it's important that we be regularly reminded of our duty before God to love. And specifically this morning, I want to focus on our duty to love fellow Christians. You can apply the virtue of love to uh, pretty much every area of life, but I want to narrow in on our duty to love fellow Christians. You remember what Jesus said about this, love for other believers in the Gospels? Uh, This is a crazy statement. He said in John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for other believers decidedly identifies us. It marks us as Christians. In fact, 1 John 4 says this uh, even more intensely. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. There's two things about that text that I note. First, if we don't love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, then we don't have love for God. That's what he says there. If we don't love our brothers and sisters in Christ, then we don't love God. Second, love is not an extraordinary mark of an elite Christian. It's not something reserved for the best of us. It is something that marks every single believer. It's foundational for Christianity. We have a distinct duty to love and delight in the most difficult, hurtful, theologically whacked, and sinful Christians. We have a duty to love them. Now, I I think that I'd be hard-pressed to find someone in this room who would disagree with that in principle. I think we agree with that. But consider the words of 1 John 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love has become so diluted in our society uh, we really can't trust our culture to teach us how to love. And they think in terms of infatuation, like Cupid's arrow strikes you and, oh, I love, you know, and then it fades as quickly as it arrives. 
Uh, We also can't trust our hearts to accurately fill out a definition of love. So what can we trust? Well, ultimately, we trust the one who is himself love. We have to trust the Lord. And so we're going to look this morning at what God has said about love and how the Holy Spirit defines this virtue in Scripture. That leads us to the love chapter. Uh, Read it, most marriages, and while it's not strictly about marriage, it is certainly applicable to marriage. Uh, So our text is going to be 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 7, just for context's sake, and then uh, we'll, we'll jump in after that. So let's read. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning seeking to be instructed by your word and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Would you, Father, point out to us the areas that we are not loving in, where we fail to rightly love our brothers and sisters. Correct the errors in our thinking, and Lord, correct the errors in our actions, that the world may look at us and know that we are Christians because of our love for one another. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's give some context to where we are right now in 1 Corinthians 13. Partway through chapter 11, up through chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle Paul discusses the church. He discusses spiritual gifts in the church. He discusses church gatherings and so on and so forth. In his discourse about spiritual gifts in the church, chapter 12, Paul teaches that Christians all have a variety of different gifts, and yet these gifts are used together for the edification and the maturity of the church. He says in uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 13, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. That's very significant. It's an incredibly significant text. Our relationship to other believers is not just a relationship um, that's natural. It's not just that we like them or we happen to be around them. The relationship that Christians have with other Christians is far more significant. There is a union that we have with other believers, a mystical union. We are made one in Christ through the Spirit. And so we're we're spiritually part of this body of Christ, and so we each have our distinct roles. As the hand has a different role from the foot, so too does our roles within the body differ, yet they're all ultimately for the healthy functioning of the body. Chapter 12 goes on to say that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Our differing gifts serve the church 
And they lead not to division, but to unity, to maturity. Paul ends chapter 12 with this statement. Earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. What, what more excellent way? What is, what is more excellent, what is better than supernatural miraculous gifts given to build up and edify and strengthen the body of Christ? Chapter 13, the very next couple of verses then tells us, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and knowledge, if I have all faith but have not love, I am nothing. It says, if I give If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. If you're martyred, but you don't have love, that martyrdom counts for nothing. Love, love is the answer. Love does more for a church than any other gift. It is a more excellent way than all the things listed prior to that. It is the essential factor that makes our particular gifts effective, helpful, and edifying to the church. And that means that if you have someone who is incredibly talented, I mean, a man of incredible skills and gifts, uh, a man who is the most compelling preacher on the planet, or more brilliant than all the theologians in uh, church history, if that man lacks love with those gifts, he won't help the church, he'll hinder it. If you are really gifted at some particular thing in the church, if you're a gifted small group leader or administrator or singer, and if you lack love for brothers and sisters, then don't help because it's not going to serve the church. Love is the power behind our efforts. If you have a drill, it's a really helpful tool, but if you don't have a battery that's charged, it's not going to do you all that much good. It's a similar kind of idea. So then, let me ask this question. If you were an adversary to the Christian church, if you were a spiritual power seeking to hinder the fruitfulness of Christ's people, where would you focus your attacks? I think by robbing Christians of love for one another. And in that, you see the danger, brothers and sisters. You see uh, a weakness that can be exploited by the enemy. And so Paul, seeking to help grow the church to maturity... Encourage unity. He defines and describes love. He gives a robust definition. I think probably the most robust definition for a virtue in the entirety of Scripture. He gives a a rubric or a standard against which we can test ourselves and evaluate ourselves that the church may be healthy and that we, in our individual capacities, can effectively serve the Lord by using our talents and our gifts. With that in mind, let's continue verse four. He begins, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. Love is patience, patient and kind. You know, pagans exercise a kind of love. They can. Um, It's a common grace love. But if you look at the, the kind of people that wild, wicked unbelievers love, they tend to love the people who are most like them, They tend to love the people who agree with them. And they tend to love the people who don't tick them off. Brothers and sisters, that's not our love. That's not the love that Christians should have for one another. Christian charity does not depend on the performance of other people. Our love 
for brothers and sisters in Christ is not contingent on whether or not they do the things we want them to do. Patience, he begins, love is patient. Patience assumes something. It assumes that you need to be, you need to bear with some problem. It assumes there's going to be troubles and difficulties in loving someone, and you must be patient with them. Paul says this because the people we're supposed to love won't always be easy to love. They'll repeatedly sin. I have heard Christians say before, well, I'll give them one more chance. That's it. If they do that again, I'm done with them. That is not Christian love. The world thinks like that. The world cancels people very quickly. One wrong step and you're out. You know, know, since we're Christians, we'll give you three missteps before we kick you out. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Where has the Lord given you or I permission to be done with a Christian who is in good standing with the church? There is not a single place in Scripture that says we can just cut them off because they're inconvenient or difficult. But they're sinful. Well, so are you. But they've hurt me. It's so hard to be loving to them. They keep hurting me. Have you not repeatedly wounded the Lord? Repeatedly. And yet he is boundlessly, endlessly merciful to you. You know, Peter asked Jesus in the Gospels, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus is like, nope, I don't say to you seven times. I say 77 times. And the point was not him giving a specific number. It was uh, essentially forgive him as many times as he needs forgiveness for. Now, Jesus explains after this a parable explaining why this should be our attitude. The parable's point is essentially this. Has God not forgiven you so much more than you have to forgive your brother for? Have your sins not been far more offensive to God than your brother's sins against you? If the Lord has forgiven you, then how can you withhold forgiveness? How many times have your sins betrayed the God who bought you and purchased you with the blood of Jesus. How can you then hold such hostility and unforgiveness towards those who hurt you? Thomas Watson wrote, you, ca- you who cannot love another because of his imperfections have never seen your own face in the mirror. It's well said, I think. Sincere love patiently endures the worst, the worst of other Christians. I've heard this view that some believers have espoused that says we don't need to offer forgiveness if the one who offended us doesn't ask for forgiveness or hasn't repented. I've heard that repeated, and I think that's not correct. I don't think that's a correct view. I don't think that that's the essence of overwhelming, sacrificial, patient love, the kind of love that Paul describes right here. Romans 5 says, God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Did God wait for us to repent before sending Jesus to die for us? No. 
He took the first move of kindness and mercy. And Romans 2 tells us God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. His actions, his first step of charity leads us to repentance. So should not our mercy and patience towards believers who don't deserve, perhaps, forgiveness, should not our mercy and patience goad them to repentance in much the same way? I think it is far more Christ-like to be eager to forgive any transgression, even if the other person is being stubborn about it. So what if they're being stubborn? Love is patient, Paul says. And you know what? If we're fools because we forgive again and again and again, and then we're wounded and betrayed again and again and again, so be it. So be it. Forgive. Forgive again. Call us a fool. Forgive again. Love is patient unless they repeatedly sin. No. Love is patient unless they're theologically wrong. No. Love is patient unless you've been really hurt. No. If other believers don't love you back, things are asymmetrical, then that's wonderful. What better way to be imitators of God, as Ephesians says? Paul proceeds to say, love is kind, kind. Kindness produces tenderness and gentleness. It's not unduly harsh, it's warm, it's, it's gracious. Uh, in our Wednesday morning men's Bible study, we've been studying through Isaiah, and we recently hit this verse says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. And that's ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus, who perfectly demonstrated kindness and gentleness. He, he didn't pounce on the weak. He, he lifted them up. He encouraged them. He was gentle and kind. He was fierce when needed. But kindness was the disposition of his heart. And so too ought it be the disposition of the heart of all Christians. Being kind with a brother or a sister means that we don't rage internally about something with disdain and bitterness while uh, offering pleasantries to kind of just smooth things over. That's not, that's not the essence of kindness. Uh, we genuinely seek the good of others. We, we're generous with them. We're hospitable to them. Our actions flow out from the heart, the heart that seeks the good of other Christians. Paul continues, love does not envy or boast. Now, I think in the context of uh, chapters 12 through 14, this one makes a lot of sense. Think about it. If someone has the gift of prophecy and, uh, you know, you're over here with the gift of administration, you could be like, that looks way cooler, you know, I kind of wish I had that. Uh, could not that be an opportunity for envy to rise up and... Conversely, the person who has the gift of prophecy could not boasting arise as they look on others who have different gifts. Envy and boasting is, in one sense, uh, relevant because we have different gifts. We're given different talents. And so we have to be especially on guard uh, in the context of the local church, those things. If you've ever been envious of someone, which I'm pretty sure is all of us here, uh, you know that it can be really difficult to uh, interact with them without some kind of resentment or sour feelings towards them. Uh, envy really taints the heart towards someone. Uh, you, you can hardly even think well of someone when you're envious. You, you struggle to wish the best for them. 
Envy robs us of our ability to rejoice in others' victories. We're the body. We're, me- we're meant to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Yet envy dulls the hearts. We, we feel like we can't rejoice in someone else's victories. The envious man may even wish disaster or tragedy upon the man that he's envious of. He wishes that their blessing would be removed. That's certainly wicked. There's no surprise to us. That's wicked. And yet, who among us can say they are completely without jealousy? Envy is the marriage of selfishness and hatred. Why do they get that and not me? Why am I robbed of that joy while they experience it? Jealous people consider others' victories as robbery. Their victory seems like our loss. But brothers and sisters, that's a lie. That is just not true. It is not true that if someone else wins or has cause for rejoicing, if the Lord has blessed them, that that means we are robbed of something we deserve. That is just a lie. It's not true. A fellow Christian's triumph, their, their gifts, their glory, that doesn't rob you of anything. What have you really lost in someone else's victory? God has granted others good things, just like he's granted you good things. And you're not sovereign. You're not perfectly wise. You don't know what is the best thing for the kingdom of God. James tells us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. So if we're envious, is that not despising the kindness of the Lord to other Christians? Is that not spurning his sovereignty and his wisdom and his knowledge about what is best for the church? It despises the sovereign prerogative of the Lord. Paul told us, if one member rejoices, we all rejoice. Their win is our win. That's how the body is designed to be. So only someone who really thinks individualistically, as though we're not all members of the body of Christ, who can be disturbed by another person's blessings. Praise God in your life that he apportions in accordance with his wisdom certain gifts and certain blessings to certain people. That's reason for praise, not for envy. If you particularly in your heart really struggle with jealousy, looking at other people, feeling that in your heart, perhaps consider Do you think too highly of yourself? Why do you believe that you deserve what God has given them? Where does that come from in your heart? Perhaps the very reason you don't have that very thing is because of your heart's disposition about the whole issue. Because the Lord might know that you'd be puffed up with it if you had what someone else has. Besides, consider what the Lord has done in the past with meek and humble people. Think about um, David. There's a whole season where Saul was reigning on the throne and David is watching him. David is certainly a better ruler than Saul. David could do it better in one sense. But for years he waited in Saul's shadow. And yet he wasn't consumed with jealousy. We don't have all these stories about him being envious towards Saul, even though he'd be better at the job and was better at the job once he was king. No, David accepted with thanksgiving the lot that God had apportioned to him. He even defended Saul's kingship on several occasions, if you remember the story. And who knows? 
I mean, maybe it was the patience and meekness and humility of David that made him such an especially great ruler. Maybe he needed those years to develop his heart that when he was uh, appointed king, he could rule well. It's the weak and the foolish things of the world that God uses for his great glory. Paul says that the weakest, most vulnerable members of the body are given the most honor. And so if you are one of the foolish things in the world, if you're one, who is, if you're one of the one-talent people and not the ten-talent people, uh, don't grieve but rejoice because the Lord can use you for his great glory. On the other hand, as I said, Paul also warns of boasting to the ten-talent people who are among us. To those who are really good at a whole host of things, uh, do not be arrogant or presumptuous. Do not be arrogant or presumptuous. You did not make your ten talents. You were given them as a gift from the Lord to use for his glory. God gave them and God can take them away. Don't be prideful, don't boast, and don't look with disdain on the one talent man as though you're better than him. The one-talent man who makes one talent more will be far more pleasing to the master than you who squander all ten talents that you've been given. Don't boast, but rather tremble and be faithful in all things. The end of verse 4, the beginning of verse 5, says, Love is not arrogant or rude. Arrogant, arrogant. A number of times this term arrogant is used in the New Testament, and it's translated to puffed up. Love doesn't puff you up. I kind of like this image of like a balloon. Uh, uh, Balloon's big, it's it's large, it's filled with air though. There's no substance to it. It can pop. There's nothing to it. It's light. It's it's not weighty. It's the idea of uh, don't be puffed up. Don't be like a balloon thinking you're more than you are. Arrogance is visibly demonstrated pride. A high view of self, a high confidence in self, those things result in arrogance. Love, however, raises other people up and considers yourself lower than they. We've all met really arrogant people. They're the kind of people who always think they're right. They think they can do no wrong. They often look down upon others to puff themselves up. And rudeness, I think, is very tied to arrogance. A rude man is a man who acts with no or little regard for other people. Rudeness is just this nasty blend of arrogance and ignorance, really. Uh, If you know someone who's really rude, they tend to leave a trail of offenses and hurts and pains, and yet they seldom realize it was their actions that have done this because they're ignorant of their brothers and sisters, and they are arrogant. A rude man devoid of love will find himself often blaming others for problems, often thinking lowly of others, often finding himself at odds with people, and often thinking that other people are just too sensitive. He won't see that his thoughtlessness and his arrogance have harmed others. You see, love cares enough to know other people, and that means know their weaknesses and their struggles and their their problems and their sins And then to act accordingly in a way that doesn't crush them, but builds them up. It takes into account the real weaknesses of people. And as Romans says, bears with the failings of the weak. Verse 5 continues, 
It does not insist on its own way. It does not insist on its own way. When I memorized this section as a kid, I memorized it as, it is not self-seeking. That's how I think of this. I think Philippians 2 describes this very same kind of principle to not be self-seeking. Philippians 2 says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Brothers and sisters, I think as American Christians, we're not very great at thinking of others as more significant than ourselves. I think that our hearts have been conditioned by a selfish culture. I think that we have been trained from childhood to be obsessed with ourselves, with our desires, with what is most comfortable for us. But that is an utterly foreign idea in, uh, in the Bible. Our lives are not chiefly about us. It doesn't revolve around us. It's not for our comfort. It's not for our enjoyment. It's for the glory of the Lord and for the edification of his people. I don't say this to guilt you. I don't want you to just feel bad, but rather to encourage you to take seriously this command to consider others more significant than yourself. I mean, think about your life and think about all the ways that you do things ultimately for yourself at the expense of what others want or desire or need. Love doesn't seek its own good. It seeks the good of others. I I just can't escape the um, image of parents. I think that parents are a really, hopefully, a really good example of this principle. Parents love their children such that they sacrifice for them. I mean, they set aside what they're wanting. They're set aside sleep and time and energy to care tirelessly for their children because they love them. A godly parent doesn't act primarily for their own interests, but rather for the interests of their kids. That's why mothers stay up late into the night rocking babies to sleep. That's why fathers spend hours and hours at work laboring so that their kids may flourish even at their own expense. That is such a good image, I think, of the kind of love that ought to be representative, not just of that relationship, but of the relationship between Christians. Paul continues, love is not irritable, it's not provoked. Do you find in your heart that other Christians quickly annoy you and irritate you and quickly anger you? If that's you, that is a sure sign of a hardened heart towards brothers and sisters. Perhaps that person does need to change who's really annoying you. That might be true but we must remove the plank before we can remove the speck. Love, genuine love, makes Christians resilient, makes us unirritable, it it makes us not easily angered. It, It sweetens the heart for other believers. If you think about a fire, fire is easily lit on a dry log, but if you dump water on that log, it's going to be much more difficult to light a fire. That's what love does. It is water that dumps, pours on a log that it may not burst into into flames with wrath and anger towards other believers. It always tends to be that we are angered or irritated by the people who are least like us in the church. 
the people who sit on the other side of the, of the uh, sanctuary, as it were. Christian love doesn't extend only to Christians like you. It doesn't extend to those who are in your phase of life or those who theologically align with you on everything or those who are really easy to love. The glory of God demands that we love the entirety of God's people. Every single person who is counted a Christian is deserving of love, not because of them, but because they are members of the body of Christ along with you. We must not be easily provoked to anger by another Christian. A spirit of love will be enduring. It'll be slow to anger. It'll be gracious towards even the most tough, difficult to love people. Now, now I want to acknowledge there is a righteous anger towards sin that exists. I mean, Jesus was angry at sin. I acknowledge that exists. But let's be honest. I think if you were to look at the times in your life where you're angry, there's probably far more irritability than there is uh, righteous anger in our lives than we'd like to think. If you're quickly angered, consider, does your anger stem from the law of God? Does it stem from God's holiness and his nature? Or does it stem from a desire for self-vindication? Does it stem from an expression of self-interest? Essentially, where is this anger coming from? Is it zeal for the Lord or is it zeal for self that is resulting in being upset? Listen, I, I think that any error dishonors God, but I think, generally speaking, we are far more likely to be too quickly angered than too slow to anger. God says of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Consider how slow God was to destroy Israel. It took like centuries of idolatry, and he was so long-suffering with them before he did eventually destroy them. Consider Jesus' example of a silent uh, sheep before the slaughter. That's an, that's an example worthy of imitation. Think think about Jesus for a second. The men who killed him were the most deserving of anger than anyone who has ever sinned. They were killing the sinless son of God. There's not a sin greater than that. But Jesus wasn't raging on the cross with anger and vitriol towards those who justly deserved anger. No, no. He says of them, forgive them, Father. Forgive them, Father. It was compassion and pity that swelled up within him, not rage. Our Lord would have been totally justified to pour out immediate wrath on those who killed him. It wouldn't even be unjust. And yet it was compassion that compelled him to forgive even his murderers. If Christ can so love his murderers, then can we not love those who have been bought by Christ, forgiven and sealed with the Spirit? His love for them was so much more profound than our love for other Christians has to be. Paul continues... Love isn't irritable. Verse 5 ends by saying that love isn't resentful. The the Greek phrase used there literally means does not count wrongdoing. Uh, Some translations say keeps no record of wrongs. Oh, brothers and sisters, this element of love, this facet of the virtue 
it is incredibly overlooked and it is incredibly significant for the health of local church. If we could just keep this one facet of love, I think that Christianity would be so much the better for it. Records of wrong, I believe, are one of the most insidious and destructive things among Christians. I think it's utterly destructive. Love doesn't keep a list of wrongdoings as though we're keeping evidence for a court case. If you keep a list of wrongs in your mind, here is what's going to happen to your heart. It's going to certainly start viewing that person's actions with skepticism and a critical spirit. All their actions, their deeds, their mistakes, they'll just be another point on your list confirming what you already knew to be true. You will quickly, if you harbor lists of wrong, you will quickly lose the ability to give benefit of the doubt. And you will start attaching nefarious meaning to otherwise mundane actions. You will inevitably exaggerate, blow out of proportion that person's sins, and feel like you're just confirming your list when you witness further wrongdoing. It, it sours the heart. It poisons the soul. It robs you of love. And the only winner of keeping such lists is Satan. It makes you bitter in your heart. Bitterness, I think, is one of the greatest enemies in Christianity today. When the heart turns bitter, it, it, it causes you to become cold and impatient and, and harsh. It, it causes distance to arise between you and that person. It's like poison. It's like poison. It, it erodes the roots of fellowship and kills the tree of brotherly love. It, bitterness is really just the stench of hatred. Where you find bitterness, you will find hatred in some hidden room in your heart. I've always been amazed how uh, such a small amount of food coloring can go such a long way. You can quickly color food, but just like a drop. It's amazing. I think bitterness is much like this. It's very potent. It's very severe. A couple drops of bitterness in the heart will color your attitude towards another person completely. The bitter man has little patience and he just waits to pounce on mistakes and sins and imperfections. The bitter man knows only criticism and suspicion. And he finds it difficult to be warm and patient and kind. Brothers and sisters, we are not accusers of other Christians. That's not our role. We do not stand there accusing them. Look at what they've done. We are pilgrims together walking on the way to the celestial city. We don't wait on the path to that heavenly city with a stick to beat and indict fellow pilgrims. No, we walk with one another on the path. When one stumbles, we don't look at a distance with disapproval and shake our head and get away from them as fast as we can. We don't sit there waiting to point out the burdens on Mr. Christian's back. No, no, we throw our arm around our brother and our sister and we limp with them to that heavenly city. 
We journey with them as fellow pilgrims. That's our role. Love demands that instead of a list of skepticism and criticism, that we bear each other's burdens with patience, forgiveness, and tender kindness. But but they're so arrogant and they're so hard to love. Well, then they're a pilgrim with a very mortal wound. Do you look at someone with a mortal wound on the side of the road and beat them further? You bind up their wounds and you lift them off the path and you go with them and tend to their needs. That mortal wound could have just as easily happened to you or to I, but for the grace of God. You're not as good as you think you are. And it is only by God's grace that you are not in a far worse state than they. With compassion and love, we bear with them and help them. That's love. Not not disregarding them, not hurling them aside, not, not getting justice for self or vindication. No, but leaving it to God and being gentle, forbearing, forbearing and and having patient love. Love thinks the best of others. It doesn't let their worst actions characterize them or create suspicion. We don't look at a Christian and look at the the, the worst parts of them and say, ha ha, that's who they are. That's them. They're just totally awful. No, we look at the best parts of them, the parts that have been sanctified by the Spirit. We rejoice in those things and we help them with their injuries. Now, Certainly, I don't mean to say that there aren't consequences for actions. I mean, if, if a brother or a sister was you know, arrested for embezzling funds, we're probably not going to put them in charge of the church finances. That's not holding out a record of wrongs against them. I think that's wisdom. But in terms of our personal relationship with them, we forgive, we let it go. We don't keep records of wrongs. With respect to our relationships, I think this is very important. And again, look to our Lord as, as the example. What does scripture tell us about what God thinks about our sins? Here's what God says. I will not remember your sins. He says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. We sing his mercy is more. It's a great song. The very first line of the first verse says, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, God is not ignorant of our sins, and yet he counts not their sum. He doesn't remember the wrongs that we've done. Brothers and sisters, don't make lists of wrongdoing. Don't let past wrongs taint your heart towards other Christians. Let's continue on, verse six, ends with, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. One of the foulest and most reprehensible attitudes a Christian can possess is when they find joy in another person's sin or failure. Few things are more wicked. If you see someone get injured and then see someone delight or rejoice or smile when witnessing this severe injury, uh, that's evil. That's evil. And what's more harmful to a person than sin? We're all members of the body. When one member grieves, we all grieve. Instead of rejoicing at wrong, no, love rejoices in truth. Love rejoices in truth. I think this is so important. Love rejoices in truth. Because uh, 
I cannot tell you the number of times I have interacted with even Christians who essentially paint this false dichotomy between love and truth. Uh, They say, instead of being so harsh with the truth, uh, we should really love people as though the two are mutually exclusive. That assumes it's unloving to be truthful, and I utterly, absolutely reject that. I think this is one of the reasons we can say that's not true. Love delights, rejoices in the truth. The Bible presents absolutely no such division between love and truth. So we we temper our speech with kindness and gentleness and self-control, absolutely. But it is a lie. Listen to this. It is a lie to say that it is unloving to be truthful. That has been used far too many times as an excuse to not be honest regarding sin or wrongdoing or false teaching. No, love rejoices in the truth. Verse 7 then ends this section. Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's just a fantastic summary of uh, the past several verses. Bearing all things. It resembles, in some sense, the earlier statement of love is patient, though note the qualifier of all things. That's, that's a pretty exhaustive uh, list there. Love bears all things. That's an expansive term. Uh, second, love believes all things. Love believes the best in a fellow Christian. This is one of my favorites on the list. This is what compels us to give benefit of the doubt. Benefit of the doubt. A benefit of the doubt is where we don't assume impure motives and we don't assume wrongdoing on hearsay. Instead of thinking when when you're confronted with someone's sin that he's totally corrupt, it's like a conspiracy that he's just as evil as he can be, no, love believes the best of others. It wasn't intentional. He believes that a man has good intentions, but he made a momentary lapse. Love doesn't entertain rumors about Christians. There are some people who, uh, they hear something, they see a sin, and they are immediately off with their friends, talking about what they saw or what they witnessed. This is gossip. This is utterly evil. It it has this idea that the most interesting parts of life are the things that are vile and profane. and uh, It's just kind of this dark curiosity. What's going on? How much better off would the church be if such people had half the zeal in running to tell people about the glories of the gospel instead of telling people about the failures of brothers and sisters? Believing all things means we don't rush to believe that someone has sinned when we hear of it. No, we believe the best about others. And if we're wrong, if if evidence piles up, multiple witnesses and we're long, then let us be the fools who chose to hold on to, to this Hope, this belief that that these people were good. Let us be considered fools for thinking well of others. I don't think I've ever met someone who has sinned by being too slow to think someone did wrong. I think I have met a lot of people who have sinned by so quickly believing evil of another person, another, another brother or sister. If we're going to exaggerate something as Christians, why not exaggerate the virtue of fellow Christians? Why not point out and expand the 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 qualities of sanctification that the Spirit has wrought in their lives. Uh, that, that seems like it would be a more honorable thing than exaggerating their failures. You guys know I really love Spurgeon. I quote him like in every sermon. I didn't want to let you down in this sermon either, so I have yet another Spurgeon quote for you. Uh, here's what he said about this. A horrid blight falls upon some communities through suspicion and mistrust. 
Though everything may be pure and right, yet certain weak minds are suddenly fevered with anxiety through the notion that all is wrong and rotten. This unholy mistrust is in the air, a blight upon all peace. It is sort of a fusty mildew of the soul by which all sweet perfume of confidence is killed. The best man is suspected of being a knave. Though he is honest all the day, the smallest fault or error is frightfully exaggerated till we seem to dwell among criminals and to all be villains together. If I did not believe in my brethren, I would not profess to be one of them. I believe that with all their faults, they are the best people in the world. And that although the church of God is not perfect, yet she is the bride of the one who is. I have the utmost respect for her for the Lord's sake. Paul continues, love hopes all things. I think this means that we don't despair when a brother or sister falls into sin. We believe that God can soften even the most hardened, rotten hearts. We hope all things. We hope the best. If a, if a Christian sins grievously, then we hope the Lord will change his heart. The Lord will sanctify his people. If, if a Christian has sinned the same way again and again and again and established a great pattern of transgression, yet still will we hope that the Lord is good and will sanctify and purify his people. Even if all the evidence points to the contrary, we choose to think the best about brothers and sisters, and we choose to believe God can do what man cannot Love hopes all things. Lastly, he says, love endures all things. Love endures week after week, year after year. A, a heart doesn't sustain the body with a single beat. Then, you know, your blood flows forever. No, it has to be a persistent, ongoing, regular beat. The same thing is true about our love for one another. It endures all things. It persists. It's ongoing. It's presently here among us, our love for one another. I think that this text, 1 Corinthians 13, is very, uh, a very famous text for good reason. It's an excellent guide and definition for the nature of love. Practically speaking, I want to end by giving a couple ways that we can better foster love for one another. If we really struggle with this, if we feel and detect in our hearts a lack of love, here's some things that I think could be helpful. First, really meditate on the example of our Lord. Really dwell on what he's done. We're told we love because he first loved us. If you struggle to love others, then spend time reflecting on God's immense love for you. What have you deserved from him? Not grace, not goodness, not gifts, wrath and fire. That's what you've deserved. And yet his love compelled him to send the Lord Jesus to die for his enemies. His love made a way for us to be justified, declared righteous in his sight through faith. Though we don't have a single work which pleased him. We were an abhorrence to God, were abominations of sin, and yet his love withheld his judgment and lavished grace on us. So if you believe and trust in him, you're forgiven, you're saved, though you have nothing to bring to the table, consider that example with respect to the duties we have for one another. Second, make every active effort to love the most difficult, hard-to-love Christians. Go out of your way 
to interact with and be kind and generous and hospitable to the Christians in this room who most annoy you. Don't, you, you can't just go around and being like, I really can't stand this person. Hopefully, I just, I'll say nothing and it'll get better. That's not how that works, okay? You're not just going to ignore the problem and have it resolved. If that's existing, some, some hostility, then work through that intentionally, actively. Greet them on Sunday morning distinctly, intentionally. Talk with them. A foster warmth in your heart towards these people. God is pleased with acts like these. And listen, your flesh is going to come up with all sorts of excuses why you shouldn't. Oh, well, they, were, they weren't alone on Sunday, so how could I greet them? I didn't, you know, want to talk to a whole bunch of... Dumb excuses. Don't listen to your flesh. Do what's very difficult and be intentional. Third, quite simply, refuse to harbor bitterness and hatred in your heart. Just refuse to do it. Just don't. If you detect bitterness in yourself, stomp that out by whatever means necessary. Fourth, go out of your way to pray for the welfare of those Christians who are most difficult to love. I've noticed that if I'm in a really bad mood, if I've sinned against my family, it's really hard for me to lead them in family worship. Now, why? Because how can we commune with God when our hearts are evil? Therefore, if your heart is filled with bitterness and hatred, what better thing can you do to get rid of that than to commune with God? So if you're feeling in your heart um, angst, anger, if you're, if you're feeling tempted to speak ill of a Christian or complain about them or gossip about them, right there, stop and pray for their prosperity. Pray for the Lord to bless them and sanctify them. Pray for their good. And that will quickly soften your heart towards them. Fifth, spend time with other brothers and sisters in the church. Spend time with other brothers and sisters in the church. It is really difficult to let bitterness fester if you are just with someone. Psalm 119, 63 says, I am a companion of all who fear you. We too should be a companion of all those who fear the Lord. Uh, be a companion to the saints, a fellow pilgrim on that road. Fellowship will warm your heart towards other people. So seriously, if someone's really hard to love and you just can't stand them, go spend time with them. Brothers and sisters, the greatest of the virtues is love. It has to mark Christians decidedly, and may it mark our church. May the world look at us and know that we are Christians on account of our love for one another. Let's pray. Father, please help us to love one another. Lord, we are a weak. We fail to do this as we ought to. Yet, Lord, we know that your spirit is able to warm our hearts for brothers and sisters here. So please give us a love for one another and convince us of our duty to love each other. Lord, please remind us of the love which you demonstrated by sending your son to die. Please, Lord, cause our dwelling and meditating on the truths of the gospel to result in greater love for the brothers and sisters that are a part of this body which you have constructed uh, through your spirit and by the blood of Christ. Lord, please bless your people. Please bless your church. We love you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.